Okay, well, who's ready for more of uh, Jesus is building his church, the church Jesus is building? And uh, yeah, I'm excited for this series. We've been looking forward to it for a long time. I had someone point out to me, actually I had a lot of someones, uh, they thought it was like a strange thought, that you can read that title either way. It's either the church Jesus is building or Jesus is building the church. And uh, the answer to that is yes. We knew that when we did that. We did that on purpose. And so the whole series is based off of this really important, in my opinion, important statement Jesus made. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's, that's pretty important if you think about that. Who we are and what we do mentioned in the same sentence with the gates of hell and that we're going to win. So this is what he's been doing now for 2,000 years. And we read about this in the book of Acts, what we refer to as the birth of the New Testament church as Jesus began this work upon the earth. He's been doing it now for 2,000 years. And if you were to go and read the Gospels, now if you're new to church, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are the four stories of what Jesus did with his disciples upon the earth. If you were to go and read that, you would see as Jesus is with his disciples and then he would send them out, you would see miracles and power. And then if you read in the book of Acts, you would see the Holy Spirit and the disciples and you would see miracles and power. Everybody got that? Jesus, disciples, miracles and power. Holy Spirit, disciples, miracles and power. But the disciples today, that's you and me. Somehow we get be good and go to church. Seems like we're just missing a little something, isn't it? And so what we are looking at in this series is really trying to find an answer to the question that so many people are asking, isn't there more to the Christian life than be good and go to church? I believe the answer is yes. That's why I'm so excited for this series. So last week we started in chapter one. This series will build on itself each week. And so if you missed part one, you're going to want to go back and get that online or on our app. Today we're in chapter two. So if you're following along in your Bible, great time to do that. Go ahead and turn to the very beginning of chapter two. And as you're doing that, I want to really point out the obvious problem we have sometimes when we read our Bible. And that is that we read it in pieces. And because we read it in pieces, sometimes we don't see how they connect. A lot of us here would say we're doing the one-year Bible reading, and if you are, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. By the way, it's a great idea. If you do one of the plans for the one-year Bible reading, there's many ways to go about that, but basically about 10 or 12 minutes each day, and you will get through the Bible in an entire year. And that, I think that's a great idea. But no matter which plan you are following, almost any plan, when it gets to the end of a book in the Bible, that's where your reading will end for that day. And at some point, you'll come back and you'll pick up another book in the Bible. And so what happens when we get through the Gospels? We see that Jesus was crucified, but good news, Jesus was raised from the dead. Come on, can I get an amen, somebody? But then the book ends. And almost for every single one of us at that point, we're at the end of Matthew or the end of Mark or the end of Luke or the end of John. We close the book and we go off to work or off to school. And we don't realize that that's not how it ended for the disciples. Actually, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And then he did not immediately go to heaven, but he actually spent 40 days upon the earth teaching his disciples. And so what we need to do sometime is connect these two dots. So I want to encourage you sometime during this series, pick any gospel, it doesn't matter, and go near the end of it, probably about the last chapter, depending upon which one you pick, and start reading at the resurrection of Jesus. And when you get to the end of that book, don't stop. Go to the book of Acts and read chapter 1. See how they go together. 
For you and me, we close the book and go away. But for the disciples, they got up the next day and Jesus is still there and he's still saying things. And as we learned last week in chapter 1, verse 4, it said, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then he told them what that was. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we talked about that in part one. It is not debatable that Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit as the promise from the Father. All church traditions teach that. What is debatable and is debated is what does that mean for you and me today? And so that's what we're trying to get back to the root of as we go through this series from the book of Acts. And so, again, we're going to be in chapter 2 in just a moment, but I want to set us up for what is happening at the very beginning of chapter 2. So I'm going to remind you what we looked at last week, what Jesus told us, that our proximity to the Holy Spirit will change our experience with the Holy Spirit. And he gave us these three different words. We would call them prepositions if we did well in English class. But everybody, here we go. Right before Jesus was crucified in the upper room, he gathered his closest disciples and he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, this is the Holy Spirit, you know him for he dwells with you. That's the first thing. With you meaning around you. Meaning, that's why David said in Psalms, where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere, because God's spirit is everywhere. The Holy Spirit is always around us. He is drawing us to God. Jesus said he's, he's around you. He's been with you, but he will be in you. And that word literally means within. It's why the Bible says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that we have within us. If you're a follower of Jesus, he will be within you. But then in the beginning of Acts, Jesus told his disciples, you will go to the ends of the earth. You will make my name famous, but don't go yet. He says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And upon meaning that we will be the experiencer of an action by a greater being. I love that definition. Four little letters, one little word upon has such a huge and powerful definition that we will be the experiencer of an action by a superior being. And when is that? What happened? Well, that's where we are today, everybody. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. They've been waiting. So if you're following along in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And we're going to stop and have a real quick nerd fact for everybody. Pentecost was one of the Jewish festivals that they celebrated every year. And the word penta means 50. And it was because it was 50 days after the festival for the Feast of First Fruits. Now, why does that matter? Because it was the day Jesus was raised from the dead. So this is 50 days after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, remember, we learned in part one, he spent 40 of those days teaching his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven. And he had told them, wait in Jerusalem for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything, but wait. So they have spent, we now know, 10 days. 10 days wondering what's going to happen. What's it going to be like? What, what, what's the Spirit going to do? I mean, what, I mean, can you just imagine 10 days of everybody going, wonder what, what how, what went? And, and of course, Peter at this point has somehow risen to kind of a, a place of answering questions or being the first among equals is the way we refer to him. So I can only imagine for 10 days, they're like, Peter, I don't know. Peter, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for 10 days, imagine every time somebody gets up to go get coffee or go to the bathroom. Don't leave, Jesus said, don't leave. For 10 days. And here we are. 
Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And you and I read this and go, Wow, that must have been so cool, dude. I wish I was there to see it. But for them, it wasn't just a cool show or some kind of spectacle. These two things that just happened for them meant something that we miss today. You see, both of these were symbolic to Jewish people of the presence of God himself. The first one was this idea of wind. Now, we're all here on the East Coast, so chances are you've experienced uh, living through a hurricane at some point or at least, you know, one that's become a tropical storm even by that point. And you're inside your house and you just hear this wind blowing so much that you think your house is about to blow down. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So they had a wind like that that came through. But here's the thing. The word that they had for wind was the same that they had for breath to represent the breath of God the presence of God. When they would experience a wind like that, they're saying, oh no, God is here. And then the symbolism of fire. Because when God was leading his people out of Egypt and to the promised land, at night he would lead them with a column of fire in the sky. So they've got this wind that represents the breath of God. They've got this visualization of what appears to be tongues of fire resting on each person. And that would have made everyone there who is a Jewish person, which is Basically, everyone there say, God is here, which validated what happened next. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The reference they're making there to Galileans were people who were from small fishing, fishing villages on the Sea of Galilee. These people didn't have higher levels of education. They didn't travel the world. They would have had no learning in foreign languages. And so they're saying, these people are from the Sea of Galilee. There's no way they actually know how to speak our language. How are we hearing our language? And I love the fact that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who was a physician because he was very, very detailed in matters that help us understand the nature of things. And so he went on to actually describe who are these people? These Jews from all over the world, these devout men, who's represented here? He explains, well, the Parthians and the Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabs too. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, eh, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine, they're drunk. What's really interesting to understand here is there are over 15 different people groups with at least 15 dialects or languages represented. And this is without a doubt the most bizarre or one of the most bizarre events in all of the Bible. Right, are you guys with me on that one? If you've ever read the Bible, this is one of the weirdest stories in all of Scripture. 
Which is why if you grew up going to church, there's a good chance you've never heard a sermon on Acts chapter 2. Because very few people want to go on record as trying to explain it, much less in a large group that is then broadcast on the internet. But hey, I've done crazier things, so we're going to keep going, everybody. But if you want to understand this event, the first thing we have to do is answer two questions. The first question is, what actually just took place? And then, what does that mean for you and me today? What actually happened right there, right then? And then, what does that mean for you and me today? Well, I'm going to share with you the three positions that are taught in the church world today, the three different theological interpretations of this event and what it means for us today. And I want to remind you that we're all from different theological backgrounds. We have different traditions that we come from. Being a non-denominational church, um, we're a bit of a mutt, if, if that's okay to say that. We, we all come from different upbringings. And for those of you that do not come from church upbringings at all, that the truth is, this is going to be easiest for you, because you're going to actually read the Bible and believe it means what it says. But uh, that was funnier than all the other services. <laughs> But for those of us that grew up in church, we've had a lot of things explained to us in such highly intellectual ways that, well, sometimes we've lost some of the basic meaning. So with that being said, what I want to remind you of that we agreed to in part one is that we always need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, not our tradition interpret Scripture. And so I've had some challenges in my life because I was raised in a tradition that's going to teach some things differently from what I now believe. And well, I'm going to share with you three different positions today. You may say, oh, that's the one I was raised in. And by the end of the day, you may say, oh, that's the one that I think is right for me according to the way I read scripture. You get to choose. I'm not going to tell anyone what they have to believe. Is that fair? Everybody good with that? But here are the three positions. The first one teaches that tongues is the miraculous ability to speak a known human language without learning it naturally. And this is the idea that a missionary may be able to travel to a foreign country and instead of spending years in language school, that they can just all of a sudden speak the language of the people that they are going to and get right to business of helping people follow Jesus. For the record, this is the prominent teaching of the, uh, of, in the, of the church in America. Most churches in America hold to this, and so there is a really good chance that the majority of you, this is what you learned growing up if you did grow up in church here in America. However, there are actually some problems with that view, and so I'm going to share those with you, and again, you can decide where you stand. Here's the first thing you need to understand about this incident in Acts chapter 2. It's not the only time that people spoke in tongues in the Bible. And the good news is it is not our only teaching, nor our predominant teaching about tongues in the Bible. The good news is we actually have an entire section of the book of 1 Corinthians dedicated to helping us understand the gift of tongues. And so that's where we're going to look at some things. Matter of fact, Paul wrote this. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, meaning that there is a heavenly language that is not a known human language. Scripture seems to contradict the idea that speaking in tongues would always be a known human language. Because Paul also writes in another place, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. 
And in case you were thinking it was a known human language, no one understands him because he utters mysteries in the spirit. Again, don't kill the messenger. I'm just reading the Bible, everybody. Paul goes on to say, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. But if you have now miraculously spoken Portuguese or Japanese or Chichewe or whatever it is, you don't need to interpret it. They got it. Why would you need the gift of interpretation, which also is one of the gifts? Matter of fact, one of the other struggles you have with this view is that Peter himself stood up and said, this is not a natural event. We stopped in verse 13, right? Let's pick it back up in verse 14. Peter is going to stand up and say, hey, everybody, let me tell you what's happening. So Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which for the Jewish people means nine in the morning. He says, no, actually, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit. This is not a natural thing. This is a spiritual thing. And your sons and your daughters, they're going to do spiritual things. Like They're going to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the first problem that we have with that view is that Scripture doesn't seem to indicate tongues will be a natural event, but it'll actually be a spiritual thing. The second problem we have with this view is that people will speak in tongues other times, multiple times in the book of Acts. And when they do, they will be in small groups where everybody already speaks the same language. So there would be no need for someone to miraculously speak a different one. The third problem we have with that view is that it just doesn't line up with the math or the situation at all. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are 120 believers gathered in the upper room. 120 people in the upper room waiting. They've been waiting 10 days for whatever this is, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What's it going to be like? And you don't know it yet because we haven't got to the end of the story, but we're going to get there in a minute. 3,000 people are going to get saved. 3,000 people. You know what that means? At least 3,000 people were in front of them, except there were also some who called them drunk, which means there's more than 3,000 people out there, okay? 120 people all gathered right here in the upper room. Over 3,000 gather right outside to hear this. And suddenly, someone about 10 people back hears this language that they grew up with. Someone about 100 people back hears the language they grew up with. Someone 1,000 people back hears the language they grew up with. And someone only two people back thinks they're all drunk. It doesn't make any sense. You couldn't recreate this today where you get 120 people, you give them a script, and then you gather more than 3,000 people and say, now read. There's no way we would understand anything that was being said, much less if they were being done in over 15 different languages in the natural and with a thousand people between you and them, you would actually be able to pick out what one of the 120 people was saying and actually make sense of it. But I think the most condemning evidence of all is the fact that you've got a person standing right here who says, oh, I hear them declaring the wonders of God in my language. And the person standing right here says, nah, they're just drunk. Because <laughs> let me tell you something, I've traveled the world. I've traveled the world a lot. And I've been all over the world. 
and thank God for interpreters because I'm an American. You know what that means? I only speak English. <laughs> I need interpreters. And no matter where I've been, no matter what language they're speaking, no matter what the root of their dialect is, I've never gotten off a plane and heard them and said, oh man, they must be drunk, it's not English. It's never been my response. Matter of fact, even if I don't know the language, I still can sometimes even tell you the language that they are speaking. And I have had times where my interpreter is standing beside me speaking that language and had times where a beggar comes up to me drunk, wanting money, and I can tell the difference between a language I don't know and a drunk person. So if they were standing up speaking natural languages, no one would have called them drunk. Everyone would have been able to hear the wonders of God being declared. But that is one of the positions that is taught today. The second position that is also taught today in some church traditions is the idea that this was actually a heavenly language, that the interpretation was taking place by the Holy Spirit at some people's ears, which is why some heard one language, some heard another language, and some didn't understand anything at all and thought they were drunk because the Holy Spirit was the one that was doing that work. That was said it's a heavenly language with the interpretation by the Holy Spirit. But the second view says, as awesome as that was then, that is no longer for today. Matter of fact, that view, you may have heard the word cessationist. It's someone who believes that the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through believers has ceased, no longer operates today. Now, just for the record, I want you to know, I grew up in that tradition. So I, I know this one very closely. And, and so if you were to ask questions as I did and uh, frustrated my Sunday school teacher so, so many times because I always thought what's in the Bible should still be for today. I was like, why not, why not, why not? But anyway, that's, that's just kids for you, right? And, and so the, the point though is, what happened is they will teach that it's not through believers, but God still moves that way. So God in heaven can still do a miracle, but you on earth, just be good and go to church. And for me, growing up in my tradition, that was, well, honestly, the worst thing for me because if all I was going to do was someday go to heaven, then I could kind of live any way I wanted. And that kind of ends up being the problem with a lot of Christians who believe that the Holy Spirit is no longer inside of you trying to change the world around you, but God will do something in heaven, you just be good on earth. So if you ask, though, how do they get to that belief that the Holy Spirit no longer works through believers today, they do get the idea from one passage in all of Scripture, and it all depends on how you read it. And so I'm going to give it to you and let you decide how you want to read it. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love never ends, but some things will end. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So we do know that there's going to be a change. The idea of prophecies and tongues and, well, even for knowledge and understanding, something is going to shift. There's going to be a time, there's going to be an event, something's going to happen. It goes on to explain, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, and that's the phrase, everybody, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, I agree to that. We have to agree to that. You know why you have to agree to that? Because that's what the Bible says. The question is, what is the perfect, and when is it coming? It says, when I, spoke like a when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But then there will be a change. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And Paul explains, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, again, when the perfect comes, 
face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we simply have to decide, what does the perfect mean? The perfect comes, because that changes the difference between now and then. The people that hold to this view believe the perfect represents the completion of Scripture. And since that took place at about the end of the first century, we no longer need prophecy, we no longer need tongues, we no longer need words of knowledge, because now we have the perfect Scripture in front of us. Now, I will agree, I believe Scripture is perfect. But just for the fun of it, what I really think is interesting is how many people use this view to say, since the perfect has come, we no longer need the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in their next breath says, oh, but we don't have to do everything in here because, well, God's changing it. Ah, that was for free. <laughs> so the problem with this view is since Scripture was completed by the end of the first century and they believe that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through believers ended at approximately the end of the first century, that leaves you and me for nearly 2,000 years with incredibly powerless lives. And yet with an incredible mission to accomplish. They would say that the reason the Holy Spirit has ceased in addition to the fact that the Scripture is complete is because the mission was so incredible for the first century disciples. I mean, they actually had to go into the Roman world and try to proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God. They needed the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do that. So we don't need that today. The last time I checked, there are almost 8 billion people on the earth, nearly 2 billion Muslims that will burn this if given the chance. 1 billion Hindus, 1 billion who claim to not believe in anything, and then the other 2 billion approximately uh, holding to all different sorts of various tribal religions. And there are only about 2 billion people that claim to be Christian according to the world census. But the truth is that's checking a box on the census. If we were to actually go and find those 2 billion people and ask, how many of you actually read the Bible? How many of you actually pray and talk to God? And how many of you ever mention Jesus to your lost neighbor? I don't think we'd have 2 billion people working. I think we'd be in the tens of millions at best. But just for the fun of it, let's go with 2 billion. That means that there are three people in the world to every one of us that don't know who Jesus is or proclaim him as the son of God. And we're supposed to do it with just this? I love the Bible. I preach the Bible. But only believers trust the Bible. Non-believers need to see the demonstration of the power of El Shaddai upon the earth. Amen. It's what God's been doing. So that leads to the second way people view the perfect when the perfect comes. It's seen as the return of Jesus, the fulfillment of the restoration of creation, that makes a little more sense to me because at least when I look at my life, if I look at what I know and what I do, I'm not fully known. I don't know fully. There's, there's no way I'm living in the then. I believe I'm still living in the now, waiting on the perfect to come. But we all get to hold to our, our own view. But that leads us to the third view that some would teach, and that is that tongues is a heavenly language. It was the Holy Spirit working to interpret, and that is still for today. It's still for today because the Holy Spirit is still moving, which means all of the spiritual gifts are still for today. But that leads to a really good question. Why tongues? What? God, that's so weird. Why tongues? Well, 
It allows the Spirit of God in us to communicate directly with the Father and Jesus, bypassing our own intellect, our own emotion, and our own understanding. Now, I'm sure none of you here have ever had a miscommunication where what you said didn't quite come out like you intended. I mean, none of you are married, right? Married people? Had this very thing happen last night with my wife. We were sitting on the porch. We were talking. She says something. I responded. Now she's suddenly gone. Five minutes later, she comes back and says, we need to talk. Oh, I mean, come on. You're married, you know. It's like, we don't want to talk when you say we got to talk. That's not the way that works. Because she said something, and it bothered me, so I kind of snapped back. And my snapping bothered her. And, and here's the point. Imagine now when we try to talk to God Almighty, we can't even talk to another fallen human. We can't even get that right. And most of us can barely pass English class. And now we're supposed to talk to God I mean, think about this, and then our emotions get involved. And you want to know what the biggest problem when we try to talk to God is? Our understanding and our perspective. Because we try to tell God we know what's best. God, you got to answer this prayer. God, you got to move in this way. God, if you don't do this now, raise your hand if you've got at least one time in life you were so glad God did not do what you asked when you asked him to. Which might explain why God gives us a heavenly language that makes no sense to us so that he can have a conversation from the spirit inside of us to the Father without our brains getting involved. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for every one of the saints. Communication there is easy. The Bible is also clear that the Holy Spirit inside of us is interceding on each of our behalves to the Father. The problem is we often try to get involved in that conversation. So what might explain this whole idea is why Paul said, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. God wants to allow the spirit in us to speak to the Father without us being able to interrupt. So Paul says, so what am I to do? Well, I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm also going to pray with my mind. That means he is going to give his two cents worth in a language that he understands. He goes on to explain, I'm even going to sing praise with my spirit. I'm going to sing with my mind also. I want to remind you that Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. He also says the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. I think sometimes we either haven't read this chapter in the Bible or we forget some of these things. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Imagine that you go to the gym, you hire a trainer, you say, I want to bulk up, I want to get strong, and the, the trainer says, okay, well, if you do this exercise, it'll build you up, and you go, then I'll never do that. It makes no sense that we wouldn't do something that is supposed to be good. Other versions word this as the one who speaks in the tongue edifies himself. Paul says it's a good thing, which is why he also says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, with that being said, you would say, then, Jimmy, why are some churches and traditions still teaching the other two views? And, well, we had a history lesson in part one. I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. It was too long. But I'll remind you of the last part of the history lesson. And that is that we're living in an era where things changed about 150 years ago. See, Jesus has been building the church for 2,000 years. But something happened in human history called the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, where all of humanity decided that intellect and dignity became the most important way to present ourselves. 
And when all of society began to focus on chasing intellect and, and looking dignified, the church as well said, well, if we want to reach everyone around us, we've got to get rid of some of the weirdness and we've got to be intellectual and dignified. And the result is that some of the stranger things and the unexplainable spiritual things have been pushed aside. Here's the truth. Tongues is without a doubt the one gift in operation of the Holy Spirit that is an insult to our intellect and dignity. I've traveled the world. I've heard people with this gift all over the world speak in tongues as they pray. And I'm going to tell you what, they all sound like babbling idiots because it sounds like babbling. It sounds like gibberish. It's an affront to our intellect and our understanding because the spirit in us is trying to bypass our minds. It means it's not going to make any sense. And we struggle with that. This is just for free and just for the fun of it, not even in my notes. But as I said, I've traveled the world. I've been in nations that had Slavic languages, been in nations with tribal languages. I've been in nations with romance languages. And here's what's interesting. If someone with a Slavic root language begins to babble, it's going to sound different from someone with a tribal language upbringing or a romance language upbringing. It should sound different because their syllables are different. The way that they form syllables is different. But you know what happens when I hear these people all over the world, no matter what their root language is? They all sound the same. Maybe it is a heavenly language. And the fact that it confronts our dignity and our intellect might be why Jesus did this. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Y'all good? Now, let me clarify something. Before all of you with a Pentecostal background show up next week and make a mess <laughs> of our worship service. And those of you without a Pentecostal background don't come back at all. <laughs> Paul said, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your mind? Yep, they will. They're not going to stick around to hear the gospel. They're not going to be here for any explanation. They're going to say, these people are weird. They sound like babbling fools. Except in Acts chapter 2, every other instance and all of the teaching in 1 Corinthians on tongues explains that it is a private prayer language either to be used when you are talking to God alone or in small groups where everyone understands what the gift is. Actually, 1 Corinthians is very clear. It is not meant to be used in a large group gathering where someone may be there that does not understand the gift. Go read 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says this. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's hard to argue with. Nevertheless, in church. And let me translate that Greek word for you because it does not mean inside of a building. It actually means a phrase, the gathering of God's people. Paul says, nevertheless, when God's people gather, I would rather speak five words with my mind that you can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the same Paul who says, but I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to pray in tongues. I'm going to speak in tongues. I'm just going to do it at home because it builds me up. It's good. The spirit in me talks to the Father in heaven. It's a good thing for me. But it's not good for outsiders. It's not good for unbelievers. So, in case you're wondering, our position at Grace Life Church is that Jesus is still building his church with the Holy Spirit indwelling believers and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon believers for the purpose of power and spiritual gifts to be a witness for him. We believe the perfect is when Jesus returns. Now that unfortunately for some of you means the gift of tongues still exists because if you want to get rid of tongues, you got to get rid of them all. All supernatural gifts have to go away. And all of the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit through believers has to go away and it has to leave you doing nothing but being good and going to church. And you can take that position as many Christians do. But that brings us to the real point today. What do we do with this? Well, as far as the gift of tongues goes, if you want it, ask God for it. And if you don't want it, then fine. Because according to Paul, you're the one missing out. But I want to make sure you understand something really important here. Tongues is God's idea. Think about that. Jesus told them, wait. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Over 3,000 people gather that day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in charge, if, if there had been a little meeting in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jimmy. And if we were taking a vote, so how do we, how do we show the power of God to the whole world? I bet. Heal everybody. Just heal everybody. Man, when, when a dead person gets up, when a lame person walks, when a blind person sees, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus, everybody's going to go, Jesus! I'm going to go, yep, that would work. I might have voted, hey, why don't we just have Jesus come back down, just let Jesus float back down on the cloud. He just went up on the cloud. Let's have Jesus come down on the cloud and say, everybody! God was the one that decided, nah, I think I'll just do the weirdest thing I'm ever going to do. I think that'll be fun. Let's just confound all of this human intellect and understanding. I'm just going to show up and do the thing that they're going to debate for the next 2,000 years, but I'm going to move in power. And so here's what I want you to really understand. Tongues isn't the point. Tongues isn't even the point of chapter 2. I want you to pretend that all of that was just a fun theological class. It was not your sermon. Your sermon is going to be two minutes long. Here we go, everybody. At the end of chapter 2. So after that incredible event, Peter is going to stand up. He's going to preach. He's going to preach in one language where everybody's going to understand. He's going to tell them about Jesus. And this is what happens because I'm not going to read to you his whole sermon. In verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, which means change how you are living. Honor God with your lives and be baptized, every one of you. And he went on to be very specific. Some of them would get baptized for repentance by John the Baptist, but they didn't know anything about Jesus. He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized to recognize that Jesus is not dead. He is not in the tomb. He is alive. He was the sacrificial lamb who died for your sins and is born again as the one true Savior of the world. And then after Peter says that, 
He doesn't say what we say today. Hey, everybody, repent and be baptized, and someday you'll go to heaven. That's what we say today. Preachers are so guilty. Me too. But Peter said, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Power to be a witness. Think about that. These people had just watched that weirdness on their head, everybody babbling. And Peter said, you can have it too. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. I'm going to explain that because that is so important. This actually is a little deeper than face value here because these are Jewish colloquialisms. The phrase for your children means for generations to come, not just for now. So what Peter said is, you will receive the Holy Spirit. If you repent, you be baptized, you recognize who Jesus is, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But it's not just those of you here today, but it's for all coming generations, meaning people sitting right here in 2023. And then he goes on to say, and it's for all who are far off. That's a phrase to mean non-Jewish people. Jewish people are close to God. Non-Jews are far off from God in their speech. And so this is going to be for all generations to come, as well as people who are not Jewish. Guess what that means? You and me today. The Holy Spirit is for us. And the real point, the real point wasn't tongues. The real point is verse 41. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Come on, do y'all hear that? 3,000 people going to heaven, not to hell, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. Tongues isn't the point. You don't want to speak in tongues. Fine. But 3,000 people going to heaven, that's what matters. Let me give you a picture. When I took over Grace Life Church 13 years ago, we had almost the same number of people that they had that day. We were just about 100 people. And I've been preaching my heart out every weekend, usually four times a weekend, as you can tell from my throat right now. Right? You with me? And I've been doing this except when I'm on vacation for 13 years, and we are just now about to 2,000 people. Peter only preached one time. 3,000 people one time with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit's here every time we preach because we don't do this without inviting him. But I think we're still missing something because we're not getting the same kind of results. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people going to heaven in one day. I think there are two extremes in our world today that has made the church powerless on mission. One is when we say the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's no longer for today and the discussion of the Holy Spirit is just relegated to the dusty corners of theological debate. The other extreme are the people that say the Holy Spirit is for every time we come together and they make showing off the center of a worship service. The Holy Spirit belongs at the center of the mission to reach the lost. It's not for us to come in here and have messy services, nor is it for us to come in here and have dignified services and pretend he doesn't exist. So I'm going to leave you with a question that I hope will provoke you. The hope will keep you awake at least one time before you come back. What would happen to our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, if we allow God to pour out his spirit upon us and do whatever he wanted through us, no matter how weird we thought it was. What if we got the Holy Spirit back in the center of the mission to reach the lost? Let me pray for us.
God, we thank you that you are wiser than we are, that you know better. God, if it were up to us, everything would always make sense. It would be orderly. It would never confront our way of doing things. Maybe that's been our problem. So God, we ask you now, would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you use us as vessels for your glory, but also for your power? Would you use us in our lives as testimonies, as vessels of power to reach those who do not yet know you? God, we know the point is not a display, but it is to see the lost come to know you. It is that many will go to heaven. God, would you use our lives to reach those who are lost? If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. See, the truth is we're all sinners. We all have had a thought, an attitude, or, or done something that's not perfectly holy. It's called being a human. And the good news, though, is God loved us so much, he didn't leave us to pay for those sins, so he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus came to the earth. He lived a perfect life so that when he died on the cross, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, it could pay for our sins because he had none of his own. And then the same power that raised him from the dead offers you and me eternal life. We call this the free gift of salvation. But we have to receive that gift. And if you never have, if you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want to help you do that right now. Wherever you are, would you pray and say something like this to yourself and to God? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. My simple prayer today, will you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?